Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We have heard that movie theaters in some parts of this country are beginning to reopen. This is, I don't want to say it's one of the straggler things. There's lots of things that are still not open, but it's one of the... It's one of the signs that normalcy in some ways is beginning to return a little bit. We're beginning to get back to where things are supposed to be. But there are questions here. Namely, are you ready to go? I mean, assuming you went to movies before this, because you're probably not going to suddenly start going if you never went before. But if you had been going to movie theaters, are you ready to return? What about the entertainment industry as a whole? Where does where does everything stand right now? Barry Hertz is the film editor and deputy arts editor of the Globe and Mail. He joins us now. Barry, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me. I was reading something the other day and talking to someone on the show that um, it takes something like 66 days, I think was the number, for something to become a habit. And I, I raise that because we're past that number with this lockdown. And I wonder if the idea of entertainment at home has become a habit now for people, or if they're still just ready to leap out and go back to the movie theaters? Well, I think it comes down to risk assessment for a lot of people. A lot of people are very nervous about going outside and going to any kind of uh, large-scale entertainment, whether it be seated with, next to or in some sort of closed environment with a lot of strangers. Um, but on the other hand, I think everybody, no matter what their risk assessment is, is pretty sick and tired of staying at home and consuming entertainment on their couch. I'm, sh- I- I'm positive that everybody, if, you know, everything magically lifted tomorrow would want to get out there. It's just a question of whether they feel safe or not to. My, my gut tells me that you're right. And then the other part of me says, well, wait a second. It's way more convenient to be at home. It's more comfortable. There's no commute. There's no parking. Uh, it's a lot cheaper. Um, so let's say that there's a bit of a, a, a scale balance on the scales here going on. What do theaters do to try to reintroduce them to people who may be a little bit on the, uh, on the edge here? They're not really sure. How do you draw people away from the safety of your house and bring them back to movie theaters? You know, it's a, it's a tricky question and it's a question that's plaguing, you know, a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry right <laughs> now. I mean, theaters were not exactly at the height of their powers before all of this began and we're fighting a war against um, you know, increasing um, innovation in the streaming market. Um, because, yeah, you're right. It is cheaper. It is easier. Um, it is more comfortable to just sit at home and, you know, have this vast array of options in front of you um, rather than, you know, figure out babysitting logistics and the cost price price of getting out to a theater and paying for concessions and parking and all that. So it wasn't exactly like it was easy beforehand. And now... Theaters kind of have like a slight benefit and, and a vast disadvantage. The slight benefit is that they're, again, something of a novelty. So no one has been going out um, over the past three and a half months. So the opportunity to do so is suddenly much more enticing than it was previously, just because of that rarity. On the other hand, people are, are not going out for a reason. Um, and their own reasons. So to actually convince somebody that it's going to be an experience worth the cost, worth the effort, and worth making that own risk assessment uh, for your um, sense of public health and safety is going to be that much harder. 
could you see theaters they don't generally do this i don't remember it happening very often but could you see theaters dropping prices to try and lure people in um it's potentially um potentially but you know they need to really make up a lot for a lot of lost ground um over the past three and a half months um so that's not something necessarily they can afford to do um, and when they do come back, they're going to be also, you know, doing physically distanced theaters, which means their capacity is going to be cut in at least half. So they're already at a huge disadvantage. So if they cut the ticket price point, um, that's just going to further eat into whatever incredibly slim margins that they have. And that's also something that might have to be discussed on the studio level with the, the uh, you know, producers who provide them all the movies. Um, they take a big cut of those ticket prices as well. So it's not just something that um, exhibitors can decide unilaterally. Right, and you're you you you're bang on. And I mean, for them to go back to the studios and say, okay, we want you to take a little less, and then the studios have to go to their stars and say, we want to pay you a little less, and we know how that will play out. And uh, yeah, it would be, it trickles all the way down. It becomes pretty difficult. Yeah, I exactly. can s- I can see um, certain movies still doing well at the movie theaters, to be honest. I mean, when they, when they reopen the, you know, the big action movies and things like that, they're always going to do well on the big screen because of the, the noise and the everything that, you know, you need to see those on the big screen. But again, now, am I going to pay movie theater concession prices and everything else for a rom-com or some drama that I can probably watch just as well at home on my TV? Well, it, that's a good question, and that's a question that a lot of the exhibitors and movie producers were asking themselves even before the pandemic hit. Um, you, you were seeing an, a decreasing amount of comedies, of rom-coms, of kind of adult-oriented, mid-budget dramas. Those were not making their way to movie theaters as much as in past years, and were more often, if they were being produced at all, were going directly to streaming or directly to the art house circuit, with a more quicker route to home viewing. Um, so yeah, you're going to, uh, this is just kind of going to further exacerbate that um, concentration of the big kind of blockbuster action event type films, um, because those are the ones that are going to want to get people out to see it with the biggest and best kind of presentation as possible. And ideally with some sort of crowd to get that kind of energy and buzz. Um, but can movie theaters sustain themselves especially in this new environment with just those kinds of films. That's an entirely different question. Well, yeah, because uh, who, who go, I mean, I know anybody, we we can't whittle it down to just very specific, but generally who goes to those movies, who goes to those giant Marvel or whatever. I mean, it's younger viewers, correct? Mostly. Yeah. Younger adults. Uh, Yeah. Younger viewers, teenagers, you know, that coveted kind of like 20 to 49 demographic which actually kind of bodes a little well um, for the current situation um, because of, you know, what the scientific community knows about this virus is that it is much more uh, making an impact on those over 60 years old, on those with pre-existing conditions. That kind of audience, um, to put it in very crass and harsh terms, is just not who Hollywood is interested in anyways. They're interested in the younger crowd. So if those older audiences um, who have been found that, you know, the movie producers are not really making content for them, so they have no real desire to go to the theaters in the first place, add on a, this, this virus to the equation and their fears for their own health, they're not going to want to go out anyway. So you're going to have a further 
drilling down on content made for younger audiences who do feel more safe, who do feel like they are being more served to by going out. Yeah, I, I just wonder if they have money right now. And maybe maybe they do. Maybe, maybe I'm missing the point. But I mean, with so many summer jobs that have vanished and so many other things, I mean, does the audience that you typically have gone after have the disposable income to go a couple nights a week to the movies? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, it depends if they want to maybe eat into their monthly streaming bills um, for a little while. Because that's the other thing. With the advent of streaming, <clears throat> there are not just we're dealing with like the Netflixes of the world there's more niche services popping up every day. So if you want the full spectrum of what is being produced and what is offered, you need to subscribe to, you know, a half dozen services, which mm, gets yeah. the bills climbing up. So, you know, consumers are going to have to make some decisions. And earlier on during this pandemic, we kind of saw a spike in subscription levels for streaming services because everybody was trapped at home and they needed some sort of diversion. I feel now that we're kind of exiting that a little bit people are taking a harder look at their budget, uh, their household budgets and deciding what can go and what can stay. And they're going to look at the same thing when they're deciding whether they have the enough money to go out and enjoy an evening at a theater, which would cost quite a bit. You bring up the cost and, and I, I wasn't going to point this out, but it, it, I had a chat with someone the other day because I wrote a piece for, for the paper about golf courses and someone said, oh, golf is just for, you know, rich elite people now. And I was thinking, wait a second, a golf, a round of golf that could take half a day, you could probably get a, a decent round for 60 or 70 bucks. If you go to a, a movie and you buy two tickets and buy a couple things of popcorn and a couple pops, you're not far off that money either. I mean, ball, uh, movies are no longer a cheap night out. They really aren't. No, I mean, yeah, especially factor in concessions, as you say, parking. Um, no, they're, they're not at all. Um, but it is kind of... I, I do feel there's still a slight advantage in that it has that novelty factor. And there will yep. be, if, you know, the things roll out according to studios' hopes, um, those type of big event pictures that will only be available to view on a big screen. And you want to be part of that conversation as soon as it kind of starts to happen. Let's talk about that rolling out, though, because that's the other issue here, I think. <clears throat> and that is you can open all the theaters you want, but the studios have all but shut down production through this pandemic. And so if the pipelines have not exactly been open, what is going to be ready to be put into the movie theaters? That's a great question. I mean, what we have is because the summer movie season and the spring movie season to a certain extent has been basically erased from this year. Um, there are a lot of products sitting on the shelf waiting for uh, a big screen to become available. Um, we not only have like the uh, delayed movies like uh, Fast and the new Fast and Furious, A Quiet Place, um, but also films like Tenet and Mulan, which are kind of also being pegged as like when theaters are ready to open, these films will be ready and they're ready to go. Um, but yeah, as you get further down the line, about a year out from now, say, there will be a big drought because we have stopped installed production on a lot of those big kind of tentpole movies that theaters rely on. Now, some of those are inching toward production. Again, the new Jurassic World, for instance, has restarted back production. Um, the new Batman movie with Robert Pattinson. So they're slowly getting the gears going. But there will be a much more less steady output um, than you're used to of like every weekend. There'd be, you know, at least two or three or four fairly high profile movies being pumped out to theaters. 
And that, so you mentioned a few minutes ago about when we were talking about costs that the, the studios have taken a hit on this and they, they're, they're not going to want to drop costs. When we were talking about dropping the prices of movies, would I be correct then in assuming that if they have been absorbing big losses, um, the, the studios are going to be, this is even more important then for them to not have giant expensive flops. The, these, the movies now, they have to work for these studios when they put them in the theater. Yeah, exactly. So you're actually you're going to see much more, I feel, in the development process of things that are eventually going to be put into production whenever that is safe and cost uh, reasonable to do so. Much more safe kind of products, um, you know, things that really appeal to the four quadrant audience, which is like basically all demographics as possible. Um, not nothing really daring or maybe a little off-putting or subversive. You know, you're going to see very sequels audience kind of friendly content yeah lots of sequels lots of tried and true yeah exactly things that they know that there's a built-in marketplace for um and that will be as close to a sure thing as possible doesn't that though i mean what we want to get i think for most people i mean some people just want to have explosions and stuff and that's cool that's fine that's cool but uh for some people you really want to go and see something that's new and creative and unexpected and won't that run the risk of cutting into that because they don't want to take a chance on those things yeah i I think there definitely will be maybe you can make those kind of films for a, a smaller budget for a streaming service which requires a little less of a return on investment than it does if you're putting something out for a big um, theater run. Um, but it is, it is going to be setting a very problematic and distressing, um, precedent. Yeah. I I mean, I would, I would think that of my favorite movies of all time and, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of Shawshank Redemption would be somewhere on that list and Slapshot would be on somewhere on the list and Spinal Tap would be somewhere on that list. Uh, none of them were movies that were that did particularly well in theaters. And I'm looking now and saying probably in this right now, if, if someone came up with a suggestion for those, none of those probably get made. And they were all great movies. Exactly. Yeah. You, you're going to have a real reticence um, from the content development side of anything that looks risky or involves taking a chance. Because right now, nobody can afford to take a chance. Barry, one thing that I've kind of been surprised at, and it's not movies, although it kind of maybe ties in, well, it ties into the entertainment thing, is with no, with shows not in production, with studios and TV studios looking for stuff to do, one area, and, and with every musician seemingly waiting to get back to business because we don't have concerts anymore, I have thought to myself, I'm surprised we haven't seen more efforts to have live music on TV, to have big name stars who might've been on tour this summer, do something with a network and they make a little bit of the money they want and they stay relevant and the TV network gets something new that they don't have to play a rerun on. Am I missing something of why that would be something that has not clicked? Because I know Garth Brooks did one and I think there was another one or two that I saw, but it hasn't happened much. No, and I think, you know, if you're a live performer, you're kind of really waiting to see how this plays out right now because um, you don't really want to give away your most precious asset, which is your performance skills, that archive, um, to just anybody. You want to ideally replicate, you want to bring people out to that live performance. When that's going to happen is kind of a, a, a big question that I think just a lot of artists are weighing right now. 
But just for the same reason that uh, Hamilton, for instance, the smash Broadway musical, you know, didn't make a recording of its live performance available, you know, five years ago when they first were uh, filming this movie that's now on Disney Plus is because you want to protect that and you want to give the air of exclusivity and you don't want to kind of mass market it out because then, well, how are you going to make further uh, revenue with other shows? Um, so they're really about protecting the talent and protecting their image and protecting their brand. But eventually they're going to have to come and decide whether, well, when are we actually going to be able to fill a stadium of, uh, of fans in the near future? And how are we going to make money? Because as we know, putting out albums does not make that much money for artists anymore. It, a lot of the revenue has been driven by live events, which is something that can't be replicated. It's a fascinating story. It's a, it's a fascinating conundrum for the entertainment industry, for sure. Although, as I say, now things are starting to open, so hopefully we get back to some form of normal. Barry Hertz, film editor and deputy arts editor of the Globe and Mail. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in Gabor Lukash, who is the president of Air Passenger Rights. Gabor, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Have you have you been on a plane since the start of COVID? Absolutely not. Uh, I actually uh, went as far as deciding not to travel to Europe to visit my family, have a 90-year-old grandmother, because I felt that I would be putting them at risk. Yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing then that if I say to you, uh, should people be concerned, uh, would you say still yes, or do you think the concern is passing? I believe people should be concerned. Uh, the COVID-19 situation is not improving. We may see a temporary relief, reprieve now, but we need to look at it at a global scale. When we look at the United States or uh, Brazil, or even some of the European states that seem to be having COVID-19 problems coming back to them, we see that this is not going away. Let's go through a few of the things at the beginning, as I was bringing you in, I was talking about the things that are being done, the things that aren't being done, and the things that may get done. Let's go through, through a few of these. And one of the things that is being done now is that WestJet and Air Canada, and I believe American Airlines and a couple others have said as of the last few days, they are now going to be filling all the seats in their plane. So not just two with a middle seat empty. Now all the seats could be filled if they can sell. Do you think that is going to make people skittish about buying a ticket again or more? I very much hope that people are going to uh, use some common sense and not purchase tickets on airlines that put passengers at risk. I understand that airlines are in a difficult financial situation, and I have some sympathy for that, but not to the point as putting passengers' lives and health of those at the destinations and the economy of the destinations at risk. What people seem to forget is that when you have one person who gets infected, it's not simply their choice, like with a standard flu or getting a cold or even getting any kind of disease that is not infectious. Infectious disease, if one person makes a bad choice, they force the choice on everybody around them, their families, their friends, elderly people, and their entire community ultimately who gets infected. So this is not a private decision how risk tolerant an individual can be, 
but it has to be viewed as a public decision as to how much risk can the community afford. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that it's it's often before now it's been a bit of a joke. I mean, now it's certainly not funny, but one of the jokes always was that you know airplanes are flying petri dishes. That if you get on there, you're going to get a cold because they're just recycling the same air and it just flies all over the cabin. Well, if it's just a cold, I suppose we can make some sort of light of it. Uh, I don't think anyone's making light of it if we're talking about this. Yeah, we have to mention that for fairness to the airlines that the air does go through some uh, special filters that is supposed to filter out most of bacteria, most of viruses. But as you correctly noted, that's not enough. There are still residues left on various surfaces. And especially if you have somebody sitting right next to you, shoulder to shoulder, who is not from your household, then it would expose you to some risk. Uh, it's a different matter if the person sitting next to you is from your household. There was no problem with that before because you're always spending time with them. But for anybody who is not from your household, I don't see how airplanes would be any different in terms of risk than being in a supermarket or being outside where healthcare uh, experts, public health officials continue to urge and in fact now may re- re- legally require persons to wear not only a mask, but also to maintain some physical distancing. So if mask was all we needed, we didn't have to do physical distancing outside, for example. No, and the, the, the challenge with an airline, as we just said, though, is that it's an enclosed space. And even if you have filters and everything, you could cough on the person or sneeze or breathe and it can move around. But it leads me to the question then of, well, what can airlines do? I mean, short of not flying, what can airlines do that would make the flights basically safe or mostly safe? What the airlines could do is continue leaving the middle seat empty unless it's uh, members of the same household. That's really an option. It may mean, and will mean, of course, more expensive tickets. But the hope of the airlines that now with this measure, they can make tickets cheaper. And now all of a sudden, uh, the, the travel is going to uh, pick up. I, I think it's a false hope. Uh, Ultimately, however, we have to remember that the airlines are just 3% or even less of our economy. We cannot put 97% of our economy at risk for the sake of that 3%. If airlines temporarily cannot fly, let it be. We want people healthy, we want people safe, we want people to survive this, and we want our economy as a whole to survive this crisis. People, perhaps an airline can survive a couple of months or even a couple of years with very difficult conditions, but small businesses cannot. So uh, we have handled the situation in Canada way better than the United States until now. And there's a reason that we are able now to somewhat relax the, the, the restrictions. But it doesn't mean that we can just forget about those restrictions and forget that there is a pandemic around. We should use this time as a way to, to um, refresh ourselves, so to speak, to get supplies to, for businesses to make some profit or most businesses who are able to make some profits have some revenue because the second wave may be coming uh, possibly in um, October, November, we don't know yet. What the current uh, behavior of the airlines may be risking is that the second wave would be coming late July or August or early September, which would make a big difference for the economy. 
want to throw something at you here that, because um, lots of people have now predicted when I asked you, what can airlines do? Many people have offered predictions or suggestions or visualized what the future of airplane transport is going to look like. Um, there's a, a site called Simply Flying, and they wrote this when they were asked or when they were proposing what it might look like for you to go on a plane. Now, here's their quote. Welcome to the airline flight of 2021. Before boarding, please walk through the disinfection tunnel and thermal scanner and have your bags sanitagged. You won't find in any in-flight magazine to entertain you on board, but look out for the disinfectant wipes as part of the in-flight service. And don't count on being allowed to board the aircraft if you start coughing at the gate. When you hear that, and I mean, obviously that's someone's proposal. Is Does that sound crazy or does that sound realistic? Uh, I, I, it's somewhat, it sounds to me somewhat realistic, actually. Uh, I would say that uh, the disinfect, disinfecting people, it may not be enough because if you carry the, the germs in yourself, then disinfection is not going to do the trick. So uh, what would be even conceivable is a situation where you go through some kind of fast testing before you board a flight. Uh, it would help a lot overall, not just flights, but society as a whole, if we had a rapid testing technology, which would allow everyone before boarding to have a test and in 15 minutes, you know, whether you, you, are, you had or you have COVID-19 or not. Uh, that's probably the future. So if, if I were having any kind of stake in an airline, I would be investing significant amount of money, money into research, into rapid tests. Based on that particular example, one thing, I mean, there were a lot of things there that are interesting, but one thing stood out right now, if you were to go to the counter and you're giving your ticket and you are going to fly and you coughed, I mean, whether it's because you've got COVID or just because a little bit of saliva went down the wrong tunnel, could you actually be banned from your seat or be told you can't fly? Do they have the power right now to say, I'm sorry, you're not going to be allowed on the plane because I heard you cough? Um, cough may be a bit of a, of a, a gray area. If you certainly display temperature over 37.5, yes, they, they can. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that this is a bad thing that they have this, if they have this power. Well, the problem is, though, that this power can easily be abused and it can cause harm to passengers because airlines are not providing refunds as they should be under the law. So uh, the, the current situation imposes all these measures on one hand without providing passengers the safety that if the airline thinks that they are not fit to fly, they will get back their money. It creates, therefore, an incentive for passengers to hide their symptoms, which is why we are already seeing just recent reports where a number of flights, recent flights, where people turn out to be sick and they did fly. Those people did not necessarily hide their symptoms, but uh, the fact that, that, there, that there can be significant financial consequences beyond not just not being able to fly to found to be unfit to fly creates a significant public health problem. So I would say that the, the, the public health measures of allowing airlines to refuse someone to um, board based on concerns that they are not healthy are good measures or would be good measures if they were coupled with clear obligation to the airline to give a refund, no questions asked any such passenger, to the, in cash to their original form of payment. 
and, and I mentioned before, using that example, that was from uh, Simply Flying, but there's others who have also come up with ideas of what it's going to look like and what airlines are going to have to do. And, and many of them, you know, the positive news is many of them are saying what we're going to see is uh, more cleaning, more deep cleaning of planes, um, you know, much more stuff to try and make them safe for people. That's that's a good thing. The downside, I suppose, although on balance, maybe not that big a deal, is that if that starts to happen, Gabor, we are going to now, if you're going to have to be tested and go through some sort of medical testing and planes are going to take longer and everything, you're going to have to get to the airport long, even earlier than we do now. I think it's three hours for an international flight. And at a certain point, I do wonder, are people going to say, oh, look, I don't want to spend half a day just waiting to get on the plane. And if it's a deterrent to flying for people, if the industry can try to do enough, but by doing enough, turns people off the industry. There is already a big turnoff from the industry, both because the industry's refusal to provide refunds, which creates financial risk, even for canceled flights, mind you, in Canada, which is a big difference than Europe or the United States, and in terms of the health aspects. You're asking a very interesting question. Where is that, that balance from an economic perspective? But I would say that in current times, Unless you absolutely have to fly, you don't fly. It is not a time to go for a vacation by flight. If you really want, maybe you go to a cabin uh, or, or go to somewhere within your province, not too far from your home. But I would certainly discourage people from going on vacation to a different country. Uh, so it's already a matter of necessity. Having uh, additional measures to ensure the flight is safe would be also prudent, and it would also help to ensure that those who actually fly are only those who really badly need to. Yeah, and you mentioned something else a few moments ago, and really, I mean, everything we've talked about right now comes down, I think, for a lot of people to this. If you do all the things that we're talking about, more staff, more cleaning, less t or more time between flights to do the cleaning and on and on and on, uh, it's going to cost more to fly. And and as the costs of an airline ticket go up, I, I think above everything else, and maybe you agree or disagree, above everything else, we are a society that looks at the bottom line. And if it costs a lot more suddenly to fly, I think you're going to see a lot more people doing exactly what you just said and say, I'll stay in Canada, I'll go to a cabin, I'll do something else. I'm not going to go on that trip. And And that's probably in the current health situation, the prudent decision to make. Uh, I, I, what troubles me is that air, the airlines, instead of facing that reality, are trying to survive at the cost of the rest of the economy. It's, it's not, uh, it's a parasite type of behavior instead of a, a cooperative behavior. Normally, the airline industry serves the, the, the tourism industry in a broader sense, and, and it, it's a symbiotic relationship with the rest of the economy. Right now, it's a parasitic type of relationship where the airline's behavior are putting everybody else at risk, possibly. Do you expect, do you believe that when the virus finally dissipates or we get a vaccine or whatever, when it, when it finally is almost gone, do you think that whatever measures they're bringing in now are going to stick around like the security measures after 9-11 have? Or do you see that, well, this is expensive. I, you know, the airline's saying we can cut some costs here. We're going to cut back. Are, are these ones that we're going to have forever now or are they temporary? I expect that, that those that are particularly expensive will be uh, temporary. 
checking people's temperature may may be something that may stick if if it can be done fast. You know, same way that you go through a metal detector at the same time, an infra, infra a reader checks your temperature. Something that can be done at low cost, little time, uh, and possibly incorporated in the airport's infrastructure, not necessarily going to the airline itself. Uh, in terms of uh, less food on board or just giving you water, that's very much in line with the uh, you know unbuckling type of of of, um, of um, air air travel services um, because uh, that saves cost. Uh, but certainly, the the what I would like to see, and and I, for, I find it unfortunate in the current situation we don't see it yet, is a kind of a roundtable discussion involving consumers, airlines travel agents, travel insurance uh, underwriters. Because if we want this business to work again, and possibly banks and credit card companies, there have to be an arrangement where everybody can feel safe, where everything becomes predictable and safe. Mm. Gabor Lukash, president of Air Passenger Rights. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.